This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we go to the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the truths that are there, for it is as we rehearse these promises and these precious verses in our soul, it comforts us and reminds us that you are the one who is in control, that your eye is truly on the sparrow and on every detail in your creation, and you certainly watch over each one of us. And that no matter what we may encounter in life, no matter what the uh, what wonderful uh, blessings, whatever heartache we may encounter, that we all have the wonderful blessings of your word, your promises, and your care for us, even when it seems like you may be far from us. Now, Father, as we study your word today, may we be strengthened and encouraged for the special place we have in your plan as members of the body of Christ and all that you have given us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're down around verse 26. 26. Let me remind you a little bit of where we started last time in verse 25 as we focused on the ministry of Paul and, by application, ministry we each have in terms of the spiritual gifts that God has provided for us. And as we move forward into verse 26 today, we're going to get into the significance of what we refer to as the mystery doctrines related to the church. And these are called, as I've said before, mystery doctrines because they are new revelation that God is giving today that in terms of what he is doing within this body, this organism called the church, the body of Christ. In verse 25 last week, I pointed out that there were three key words in verses 25 and 26 that we need to pay attention to. The first was minister, from the word diakonos, meaning a servant, related to the ministry that God has given to specifically here, the Apostle Paul, but by application to all of us by virtue of our, of our spiritual gifts. Second word was the word oikonomos, which is translated as steward. It's a manager, someone given responsibility of oversight for how resources, personnel are utilized, and in terms of the church, how our spiritual gifts are utilized in reference to the body of Christ. That in verse 25, we're told that uh, he, Paul says of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship or according to the responsibility or delegated responsibility from God bestowed on me for your benefit. Now, I pointed out last time that when he says for your benefit or on behalf of you, he's using a plural pronoun here, speaking of the church here specifically in Colossae, but also in a broader general sense to the Gentiles that are have been included within the body of Christ. This was specifically a ministry that God had given to the Apostle Paul and called him to, as we see in places like Acts 13, 47, 
Acts 22.21, that Paul was specifically designated the apostle to the Gentiles. And this is part of that mystery doctrine. Now, we have lived in an era when it is more comfortable for us to see the church as mainly Gentiles. But this was a time when up through about the midpoint of the Gospel of Acts, the church was primarily Jewish and that there were tens of thousands of converts to Christ, Jews who recognized that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. But it was had become increasingly clear, and we've seen some of this as we're going through the book of Acts on Tuesday night, it has become increasingly clear that the Jewish people were hardening their heart against accepting Jesus as the Messiah. And so by Acts chapter 10, God revealed to Peter that it was now uh, part of their responsibility to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And this is when he had the uh, vision of the tablecloth coming down filled with all manner of food, uh, both that which had been uh, approved in the Mosaic law and that which was not approved, and God saying that now that there was a change and that they were to go to the Gentiles who had been viewed as unclean. In Romans uh, chapter 11, verse 13, Paul said, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. And this is part of the mystery doctrine that is uh, referred to now in verse uh, 26. At the end of verse 25, Paul said that this stewardship was for their benefit and our benefit by application so that he might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. I pointed out last time that part of the responsibility that God has given to apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers was to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. That word for equip in the Greek is artios, and is a cognate of the compound word used for equipping uh, all men of God or all believers in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, which states that all scriptures given by God are breathed out by God literally and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, and by that the term means anyone who is a believer, it's not talking about men only, but that any believer, that the man of God, may be equipped, thoroughly furnished, and those two different words in the English are both cognates of this word artios. So there's a double emphasis there by using two different compounds of this root word, that we may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. And that speaks of the sufficiency of Scripture. That's all we need in order to fulfill whatever ministry it is that God has given us. So no matter what your spiritual gift may be, whether it's a gift of leadership, a gift of communication, a gift of service, whatever your spiritual gift is, the way that you and I become equipped for that is through our study of the Word of God and application through which God the Holy Spirit matures us, and as we grow and mature, then uh, whatever avenues of service are available to us, we will, we will seize those avenues. Uh, we do not need to necessarily know what our spiritual gift may be. Our spirit, you may have a spiritual gift of helps, and you may have a natural talent of playing the piano, playing the organ, singing, uh, teaching in Sunday school, something like that. And so there's a comp- there is a combination of a spiritual gift plus a natural ability that then can be utilized within a local, a, a local church. So that it is through the teaching of God's word that we are equipped and matured so that we can then serve the body of Christ. Well, Paul goes on to explain the focal point of his preaching. The word preaching simply means to announce something. We live in an era today when preaching and teaching are thought by some to be two different functions, that we do something in terms of how we communicate the Word of God on Sunday morning, 
that is different from what is done in Sunday school or Wednesday night service or uh, some other time. You go to many churches and what takes place in the pulpit on Sunday morning is considered to be a sermon. It's preaching. And what has happened in the history of Christianity is that a a false dichotomy has been created and a, a rhetorical distinction between two different ways of proclaiming the word of God has been imposed upon these words. Uh, preaching in in the original Greek uh, is related to the verb keruso. A keruso is a means just simply to proclaim something. A, it's based on the noun kerux, which means a herald, someone who made who was, had an official position within the government. And since they didn't have things like uh, Twitter and Facebook and email and uh, voicemail and all those other things at that time, where, whereby one could easily get the word out on certain things, what the government would do is they would send out a a herald. Uh, a, someone who had an official position to go throughout the village or the city and to walk every two or three blocks and then to make this announcement. And then he would go a few more blocks and make the announcement again so that everybody could hear the announcement. He wasn't to stop and, and talk about the announcement. He wasn't going to say, okay, now that I'm done, let's take questions. Uh, let's discuss this, whether this is an appropriate policy or not. Uh, let's see how everybody uh, feels about this. Uh, none of that. He simply made a, a, a public service announcement, as it were. And that is the word that is used for preaching in many contexts. In other contexts, for example, in Acts, the word that, the, the word that you read in your English for preaching is actually the translation of the verb evangelizo, which means to proclaim the gospel. And in many passages, the focal point of the word preaching is more on the proclamation of the gospel message per se, whereas teaching has to do with the explanation of the word of God. So if there's a distinction to be seen between these two words, that's the distinction. It Neither word relates to a specific rhetorical style. There are many different ways that someone can teach and give explanation of the word, but it is we don't find in the Bible, we don't find at that time in history this kind of rhetorical distinction made that we have today under the guise of homiletics. And I think that there are, uh, it's, it's a sad thing that has happened in the church that we have slipped away from teaching. Teaching is simply explaining what the Word of God says and what it means so that people can have a good understanding of how this relates to their own life. Uh, in many contexts today, we're told, oh, that needs to be, um, you need to be more applicational. And the question then is, well, what exactly do you mean by that? I had a seminary professor who's quite well known and became quite well known for his uh, teaching on homiletics and he told us at one time that he had pastored a large church in in Arizona and that he would come into the church on Saturday night. It all sounds so holy and pious. And he would walk through up and down. Everybody sits in the same place, and he would stop and think about, well, so-and-so sits here. How would this message relate to their life? And so-and-so sits here, and how would that relate to their life? And frankly, I, I can't imagine someone being... Uh, a pastor of the size church that he had pastored, it was around 1,500, 2,000 members, who would have that intimate a knowledge of the lives of that many people in his congregation to make those kinds of decisions. I believe that it is God the Holy Spirit who takes the principles that are taught, and he is the one who helps us and helps each individual to see how that applies in their own life. The role of the pastor in teaching the word is simply to make these universal principles clear and to explain the word so that then God the Holy Spirit can use that in each individual uh, life. Now, as Paul talks about his preaching of the word of God here, he says, 
he says that this is related to the mystery. So what Paul is preaching, what Paul is proclaiming here, has to do with the mystery doctrine of the Word of God. He is proclaiming uh, the content of this new revelation that he describes as the mystery, uh, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to the saints. The word mystery is sometimes referred to by people as we think of that in everyday language in terms of something like a murder mystery or a mystery novel, something like that. In the ancient world, it was a common word related to the mystery religions. Typically, when it's used in that context, it was referred to as the mysteries. And these were like secret religious societies. And when you were inducted in or initiated into these secret religious societies, then you would be given a special insight, sort of like joining the Masonic Lodge, which if you're not aware of it, the Masonic Lodge has its own theology, and you learn a little secret handshake and you, there are other things like that. That would be how the word mysteries was used in the ancient world uh, in that context. But this isn't talking about learning some sort of, of a hidden, super-secret doctrine. You also have that within the Mormon church today. You're going to hear a lot about Mormonism, or you should in the coming uh, election cycle, since we have two uh, prominent Mormons running for the Republican nomination, and we also have uh, Glenn Beck, who has uh, been on Fox News and is now doing his own thing, and he's also a prominent Mormon, and has generated quite a bit of of controversy recently uh, when he had his Restore Courage rally in uh, Jerusalem. And at that event, uh, David Barton, who I've mentioned before from the pulpit, who has done some good work in terms of the history of Christianity, made the statement that Glenn Beck is a Christian. And when trying to define that, he said, well, I know no one else whose prayers are answered like his prayers are answered. That's awfully subjective, but you have to realize something about David Barton's background. He comes out of a charismatic background, went to Oral Roberts, uh, university and has a distorted view of what it means sometimes or a shallow view of what it means sometimes to be a Christian and he has a mystical view of prayer which goes along with his charismatic orientation. Glenn Beck in his, um, in his remarks in Tel Aviv, I believe, where he was having this restore courage rally speaking to an audience comprised of many uh, many Israelis, said that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same God that, that I worship. And see, there are so many people today, that so many Christians that are so uneducated on what Mormon, Mormons believe and what Joseph Smith taught and what's involved in the Book of Mormon that they don't realize that Mormonism is not a monotheistic religion. It is a polytheistic religion. One of the little uh, sayings within Mormonism is that as, as uh, God was, you are. What does that mean? You are a mortal human being. God was once a mortal human being. As God was, you are. As God is, you will be. In other words, that if you go up the chain of uh, advancement within the uh, secret initiatory rites of Mormonism, which many of which were borrowed from uh, the Masonic Lodge because Joseph Smith was a, was a Mormon. You know, the Mormons have special secret underwear that has different cuts and patches on it uh, related to different oaths that they take. Many of that, much of that is related to just kind of borrowed and adapted from uh, uh, masonry, from Freemasonry. And so... Um, what their belief is is that if you go up, if you're a male, and you go up the chain of command in Mormonism, then you, when you die, 
God will bless you and you will become divine. You will become a God and you will be given your own planet. And somewhere out there in the universe, and if you uh, um, want to have a consort, a wife, then it's up to you whether or not you call your human wife from the grave to be with you if she's been a good enough wife. So the way women get to be uh, in heaven, so to speak, in Mormonism is they have to be a good wife. That's one reason you had polygamy in early Mormonism was because uh, there were more women than men, and women can only get into heaven if they are called forth from the grave by a husband. And so if you've got more women than men and the founder of the church is a sexual pervert, then it only makes sense that you do this. And, you know, Joseph, in order to elicit the loyalty of all of his leaders when, when he founded Mormonism, uh, they had to give him their wives to sleep with in order to seal their, their loyalty to Joseph Smith. He was clearly a sexual pervert, which was built within the framework of Mormonism. But this is part of the secret doctrines. See, this, this is the idea of, of how the, mis- the word mysteries was used in the ancient world. And, and there are a lot of Mormons who don't know some of these things because you have to move within tighter and tighter circles, inner circles of Mormonism, uh, until you become a temple Mormon before you're really uh, able to handle some of these secret rites. And by the time you get sucked in that far, it's, it's too late to get out. That's the way mysteries was used in the everyday language of the ancient world within these various mystery cults, like the illusion mysteries or the mysteries related to the Oracle of Delphi, things of that nature. Paul only uses the term mystery a couple of times in the plural, uh, as we see in 1 Corinthians 4.1, when he talks about this being a steward of the mysteries of God. He defines that term mystery in other places, like this passage, where it is related to revelation. It is the mystery which has been hidden from, age, from ages and from generations, but has now been revealed uh, to his saints. The word for uh, being revealed or manifested here to his saints has to do with revelation. It has to do with the um, uh, process of revelation. And the word that we find is uh, apocalypto, which is the word for revelation, unveiling or revealing new information. And so the content of Paul's preaching isn't simply the gospel here, it is that which is related to the gospel in the sense that now there would be no distinction between Jew and Gentile, but there is a new body of Christ that is composed of both Jew and Gentile so that that racial distinction, that ethnic distinction that was dominant in the Old Testament dispensation is not dominant today. God is doing something new in terms of breaking down that barrier of separation, which we studied at one point in Ephesians 2, that barrier of separation between Jew and Gentile. I pointed out that another place where Paul used the word mysteries was uh, in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, using similar terminology to Colossians 1.25 here, where he said, let a man so consider us as servants of God, not the word diakonos, but its synonym, huperetes, servants of God and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Now, what exactly did he mean as he uses this word mystery? Let's just look at a couple of other passages where this is, where this is used. For example, in Romans 11.25, Paul says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Now, think about the context of Romans 11. In Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, the Apostle Paul is explaining how God's righteousness is working itself out in relation to what God was doing with the Jewish people during the church age. And at the conclusion of that discourse, he says, that he doesn't want us to be ignorant of this mystery, 
which is now what God is doing in bringing the Gentiles or grafting them into the, he uses the image of the olive tree and the roots of the olive tree, which are the Abrahamic, which is the Abrahamic uh, uh, covenant, that Gentiles, illustrated by the wild olive branches there, are grafted into that olive tree so that they partake of the Abrahamic blessings. Remember, God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and through you all the nations, all the goyim, all the nations of the earth, all the Gentiles of the earth will be blessed. And so that's what how Paul is concluding this, that this mystery doctrine, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In Ephesians 3.3, 3, we have a passage that is very, very similar to the one that we are in. And in Ephesians 3, 1 through 5 specifically, which we may look at a little later, we have reference to these, this mystery as well. In Ephesians 3.3, 3, he uses the same or similar language. He says, how that by revelation, same word, apocalyptus unveiling, uh, by revelation, he made known to me the mystery, as I've brief, briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. What is the mystery of Christ? It is that the body of Christ is now made up of both Jew and Gentile. In our coming studies, upcoming studies in Colossians, we'll see the word mystery used two more times that he uses it in Colossians 2.2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God. Now, we ought to think about that a little bit, and when we get to Colossians 2.2, we'll develop it a little more in terms of understanding that as we understand the mystery of this new body of Christ, it's going to have, it should have a significant impact on how we think, how we think about one another, how we think about our own personal lives, our spiritual life, that we're not saved just so we can have a spiritual life, and a spiritual life is not all about my uh, personal spiritual growth, but it is so that I can grow spiritually so that I can then have a ministry within the body of Christ. It has a very strong, significant um sense of application. In Colossians 4.3, Paul will say, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. Again, he's emphasizing this mystery of Christ, how there's a dispensational change that comes with the completion of salvation at the cross and what God is now doing within the body of Christ. Now, in our passage in Colossians 1.25 or 1.26, he says, This mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations. This term, ages and generations, refers to the Old Testament period, the dispensation or the age of the Gentiles prior to the call of Abraham and the dispensation of Israel from the call of Abraham up to the cross. Uh, this ref- these two terms, generation and ages, then uh, clearly refer to that period of the Old Testament, which did not reveal anything about the coming church age. It was silent about that, and so that is why new revelation is being given. Now, in verse 27, Paul goes on to say, to whom... That is, it's been revealed to his saints to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. It is to them, that is the saints, the last word of verse 26, that God makes this known. It is new revelation. And this, this knowledge, this doctrine is described as the riches or the wealth of glory. This is something that is profoundly significant. It is not just some sort of academic study of what happens in terms of a dispensational transition, but it has to do with all that God provides us. 
For example, in Ephesians 1, as Paul begins this discourse, he says, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, what are those blessings? What is it that God has has provided for us in Christ so that we have a rich spiritual life during this age? We have to understand, and we do as we go through the study of Scripture, all the many things and all the many assets, all the many privileges that God has given us as members of the body of Christ. The word here in terms of being made known is the Greek word uh, phanerao, which has to do with uh, revelation, illumination, enlightenment, and helps us to understand that this is always related to uh, new revelation, that this is uh, described as the riches of the glory of this mystery. The glory refers to the mystery doctrine that is among the Gentiles. This mystery among the Gentiles, and then it's further described as, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, what does this phrase mean, Christ in you, the hope of glory? Now, as you and I look at this verse, our sort of knee-jerk initial response is that this is talking about uh, Christ indwelling each of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a true doctrine. I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. But I don't think that's what this is describing here, and let me show you why. You have two phrases at the end of this verse. The first is the phrase, among the Gentiles. I've listed that in the box on the left. In the Greek, it is in tois ethnason. It's a dative form of uh, ethnos with the article, but the preposition there is that preposition in. In has a broad range of meaning in the Koine period, and it is becoming, and it becomes increasingly broader in the development of the Greek language so that it can, it has a wide range of meaning. It can mean by or with or among or within, uh, by means of. It has this wide range of meaning, so you really have to look at the context to understand just what is being said specifically there when this is used. That same preposition is used in the next, uh, the next clause, which is Christ in you. So you have in ethnos, in the Gentiles, and in you in this next passage, passage and the which is Christ in you is a explanation and parallel to the mystery in the Gentiles. So it seems, since you're dealing with an appositional or a relative clause explanation, Christ in you, that the in in both of these places must be understood in the same sense. Now, it is true that in many places when Paul talks about Christ dwelling within every believer, he uses this same prepositional phrase, but as I point out, it, it can be used in different uh, in different senses. It is used, this idea of, of, of the mystery among the Gentiles is the emphasis in mystery doctrine. It is that Christ is now being proclaimed to the Gentiles who are being brought into the body of Christ. And so the Gentiles have a significant role within the body of Christ and the plan of God that they did not have in previous ages. Uh, For example, we have the passage that I referred to just a minute ago in Romans 11.25 that there is God is now working among the Gentiles until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In Romans 16.25 and 26, Paul states uh, the truth again. He says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel... And the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations. Here's that word ethnos again, and it should be translated not nations in the sense of national entities, but Gentiles, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all Gentiles, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, 
for obedience to the faith. And the point that I'm making here is that as we look at the these parallel passages related to understanding the mystery doctrine, that the mystery doctrine isn't focused on Christ now indwelling every believer, although that is true and that's taught throughout Scripture, the New Testament, but it is talk emphasizing specifically the presence of Christ among the Gentiles. Let's go to the parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 3, which I alluded to a minute ago. In verse 1, Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, at the time that Paul wrote Ephesians, like Colossians, remember they were written very close to one another, he is a prisoner in Rome, he's under house arrest, so he has a certain degree of freedom, but he wrote both Ephesians and Colossians uh, at the same time, we don't know which was first, which was second, but they are very similar in many places. And so a lot of times we can understand more fully what Paul is talking about in a passage in in one of these two letters by looking at what he says about the topic in the other letter. So in verse 2 he says, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation, this is one of those passages where we get the word dispensations for dispensationalism. The noun is economos uh, here, which has to do with the administration of the grace of God. That's the essence of dispensation is God administers his plan or program in different ways in different periods of time in history. Indeed, if you have heard of the administration of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation, there we have that word again, he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already. So here we have this new revelation, which is the mystery doctrine. He goes on to say about this doctrine, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. That is, in the previous ages and generations, as he says in Colossians one twenty six which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed, apocalypto, by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. And what is the thrust of this new revelation? Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Okay, so... In these other passages that talk about the mystery doctrine, the focal point of the, Christ, of, the, of the mystery doctrine isn't the indwelling of Christ in each individual believer. The focus is on the presence of Christ among the Gentiles, which was not a truth, was not a uh, true thing in the Old Testament dispensation. So contextually and by looking at how Paul talks about this same subject in other areas, we see that the focal point is on, on Christ, should be understood as Christ among you. So we should translate this then to them, God, that is to Gentiles, God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. It's that same kind of phrase with the same preposition among the Gentiles, which is Christ among you, the hope of glory. So it is the fact that Christ is now preached and proclaimed to the, to the Gentiles and that they are brought into the body of Christ on equal standing with, the, with Jewish believers, given the same privileges that, other, that Jewish believers in the church age are given. There's no distinction now between Jew or Greek that they have these blessings, and this is related to the hope of glory, which is a focal point on our confidence. The Greek word elpis means a confident expectation focusing on our future destiny in heaven. And then Paul says it is, it is him we preach. But before I get into the next verse, I wanted to go over a couple of verses that emphasize the indwelling of Christ. We live in an age today. In fact, two weeks ago, I was up in um, 
Pennsylvania at Baptist Bible Seminary at this conference on uh, dispensationalism and the role of the Holy Spirit in dispensationalism. And I'm constantly amazed at, as I read through theology and I hear a few people talk, how they have failed to understand that we're not just indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but as believers in Christ, we are truly indwelt by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has taken up his abode within us. And this is missed by a lot of people. You may not recognize that there's a lot of discussion on this and disagreement on this, but there are many who believe that any reference to Christ in us or the Father in us, that this is it's only the Holy Spirit who indwells us and that these other terms, simply the Father and the Son are in us by virtue of the Holy Spirit. But let's. So I wanted to look at just a couple of passages that reinforce the indwelling of Christ. In John 14, 23, as Jesus is talking to his disciples, he said, If anyone loves me, and he will keep my, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, this is talking about fellowship, but it's talking about the presence of the Father and the Son in the spiritual life of the believer who is in fellowship. In Romans 8.10, it's talking about the presence of Christ along with the Holy Spirit. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Again, it is not talking about the Spirit, but it's talking about Christ in us as well. But I think one of the strongest verses is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. These are all important doctrinal truths. Christ does live within the believer. But when Paul talks about this in verse 27... Christ in you, talking to that congregation, because of the context and the discussion of the mystery doctrine which emphasizes the inclusion of Gentile and Jew together in the body of Christ, the focal point there isn't the indwelling of Christ, but it is the presence of Christ now to the Gentiles. Now, this is the focus of teaching and proclamation that Paul emphasizes in Colossians 1 uh, 28, where he says, we proclaim him. Now, the word used for proclaim here is a form of the word angelizo. Um, we know the word angel, angelos, it was a messenger. The verb angelizo means to to proclaim a message. So kat angelizo is also the idea of simply proclaiming a message. It's not preaching. It's not keruso. It is proclaiming a message. We proclaim him. The content of the message is Christ. And we, we proclaim him. And then we are followed by, it is followed by two, prep, uh, two participles that are participles of means. How do we proclaim him? We proclaim him by admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Two different verbs are used here. One for admonishing, which is the Greek word nutheteo, which builds off of the noun nous for mind, and it is a, a dra- it's a form of instruction, but it has the implication of exhortation or challenge, uh, warning and correction. So part of the responsibility of the uh, teaching ministry of the apostle and the pastor is to admonish everyone. It involves correction. Remember 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, that the word of God is given for uh, reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. So we have our thinking corrected by hearing the word of God, and it contains a challenge to obey him. So Paul says that part of the way in which Christ is proclaimed is through Nutheteo uh, through correction and instruction, and then the word for teaching is the Greek word um, didasko, which means to uh, to instruct, give point by point instruction and explanation, and it is done with all wisdom. That is, it should be done with skill in relation to understanding application to life. The end result is so that we may present every man complete in Christ. 
This is the role of the pastor. The pastor is to teach the word because it is through the word that we grow and mature. My job is to do what I can through the teaching of the word so that you can grow to maturity. That means that my, I, as a pastor, have to have some understanding of what it takes for, for a spiritual infant to grow to spiritual maturity so that they can be of service within the body of Christ. Now, think about this in just in terms of a natural analogy to a parent. There are a lot of folks who are parents who really don't have much of a clue as to how to take a baby and make them a, a mature uh, uh, product of uh, the, uh, a mature individual that has a great benefit to society. They just kind of go through the process and watch the kid grow up and feed him a lot of food and hope that one day somehow, by the grace of God, he'll make it. But if you're a good parent, you try to f- understand what the growth process is and, and you understand your responsibility to teach and instill key principles and discipline within the thinking of your child so that when they are mature, they understand how to live in the real world on the basis of eternal absolutes and and the Word of God. The same is true for a pastor. Pastors need to understand uh, this process. And when I've taught with pastors and worked with pastors, I've often raised this question that do you know, could you draw out a blueprint on how you as a pastor get people from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood? And I usually get blank looks because this isn't taught very much. But in my understanding of how people grow and mature, nobody ever learns to swim. Let me change metaphors here. Nobody ever learns to swim in two feet of water. You have to get somebody out in water that has a little depth that gets a little bit over their head before they will really learn how to swim. Otherwise, they'll just stand up and stand on the bottom of the swimming pool, and they won't be stretched to grow and mature. In my experience, the teachers and professors that I had were always the ones that taught a little bit over my head so that I had to stretch and grow in order to learn and understand what what they were teaching. Now, not so far over my head that you just don't understand the thing that they're saying, but so that you you have to be stretched in order to grow. And that's part of my philosophy of teaching is that uh, you don't teach to a first grade or second grade level or all that you will produce is first and second graders. You don't teach to just a seventh or eighth grade level or all you will produce is seventh and eighth graders. You have to teach to a a level where that indicates your expectation of what people should be striving for. And that means you should be teaching to all as if they are able to understand and grow to to the level that you're teaching. I remember one time years ago when I was first working with a lot of black pastors, and um, this was probably my third or fourth year of working with uh, WHW Ministries, and it was at the end of the class, and you sort of had a you know comment section, and one pastor who was who I respected, who was uh, fairly successful, stood up and he said, he, he said, you know what I appreciate about you is you teach us as if we really can understand and, and handle everything that you explain to us. You don't talk down to us. And I thought that was the greatest compliment I ever got. Because unfortunately what we have is too many pastors and too many teachers who teach down to congregations, and this is why we have congregations that are filled with babies. Earl Rodmacher, who was the uh, founder and president, I believe, of Western Conservative uh, Baptist Seminary for many years, now he's the chancellor, um, made the comment years ago at a pastor's conference that we had that the biggest problem with the evangelical church is that it was a nursery. And the nursery workers didn't have a clue how to get the babies out of diapers. And that best expresses what I'm trying to say, is that the pastors or the nursery workers and 99.9% of pastors and seminary professors don't have a clue how to get people get the babies out of their diapers. And so they keep teaching down to the congregations, 
and they never can get beyond kindergarten or first grade truth. And that's just the opposite of what the Apostle Paul says here, that we are to warn every man and teach every man in all wisdom, the entire counsel of God, that we may present every man, every person, mature. That's that word perfect. It doesn't mean flawless. It means mature or complete in Christ. And then he says in verse 29, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, because it's not done in our power. Well, I certainly can't do this. It's only in the power of the Holy Spirit, which works in, he says, which works in me mightily. Now, I've drawn an analogy here between the apostles' ministry and the pastoral ministry. And it's a justified comparison because the apostle had a ministry of teaching the word, but to a, a multiplicity of congregations, whereas the pastor does the same thing. He doesn't have the same level of authority, but he does it to one congregation. And his role is to present every person in that congregation mature in Christ. And that can only happen if the pastor has an understanding of the growth process, if the pastor is himself growing and can uh, lead and direct people through the teaching of the word to becoming a mature believer in Christ with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for your word that reveals to us who we are, where we should be going and growing in our Christian life, and how to get there. We're thankful for your provision of your word for the mystery doctrine, the, that which is revealed in the New Testament that was unrevealed in the Old Testament, and understanding our tremendous privilege and all the blessings that we have as members of the body of Christ. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is not a believer, that is not not a Christian, that has never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, that they may take this opportunity to do so. Jesus Christ died on the cross for all sin, for every human being. Jesus Christ died that we might have eternal life. All the sins were paid for on the cross so that nothing is left over, nothing is needed other than to trust in him, to accept his payment on our behalf. And then God promises that he gives us at that point eternal life that can never be taken from us. So this is your opportunity. If you've never trusted in Christ as Savior, that you can do so now. And when you believe in him, you are given eternal life. You become a new creature in Christ with all of these blessings as yours. Father, we pray that you would continue to challenge us with your word, and as we grow and mature as a congregation, we pray that that we might continue to be faithful to you, putting our focus upon your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.